Hey there. Welcome to one of our first stories of the podcast. I'm David All, and this is Belly of the Beast Life Stories and Beyond. In season three, we shouldered up with you and made it clear that this podcast is not for sale. No advertising or outside influence, a sacred and safe space. Starting with season three, we dedicate a poem to one of our listeners that is standing with us as an enabler of our mission. They're doing so by chipping in $5 at bellystory.com. To be true to our word, we're going back through some of our earlier content in seasons one and two and removing the segments that we feel may not be congruent with this idea. So enjoy. This story, like every other story on our podcast, is now 100% advertising free. A safe space where you can let your guard down, listen, and notice if something comes up in your soul. If you would like to be an enabler, and we certainly could use your help, visit bellystory.com and chip in $5 today. Now, here's that extraordinary life story. The goal of this podcast is to bring to life the nature of transformation through people's personal stories of getting knocked down in life and climbing up a new person. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show so that other heroes can find it too. Let me introduce you to Matthew Passy. So that first night, it's post bottle i'm holding her for a little bit just you know give her some comfort because she's mostly hanging out in a bed and all of a sudden she just kind of freezes in my arms and she becomes very unresponsive her eyes sort of roll back in her head and i'm talking to her i'm shouting at her i'm trying to get her to move or do something and she wouldn't do and i knew right away something was wrong and so I call the nurse in and the nurse comes in and calmly says, what's going on? I said, I, I don't know. She just, she isn't moving. I, it might be a seizure. And she, you know, quickly looked at my daughter, took her out of my arms and started to call for help. Matthew is an expert at podcasting. In fact, for more than 10 years at thepodcastconsultant.com, He's worked with brands, organizations, and individuals to bring their ideas for a podcast to life. He is the host of two podcasts, Podcast Me Anything and Cause Pods. In fact, Matthew and I recently had a conversation on causepods.org about this podcast and my other show, Beyond the Belly. I've added a link to Matthew's podcast consulting practice and his podcast in the episode notes. Matthew is a guest on this podcast to talk about the important moment in his life when he transformed from being an older kid with kids to being a father responsible for a family. Matthew Passy, welcome to Belly of the Beast Life Stories. Thanks for having me. Matthew, you were telling me about an experience in your life that happened when you had just become a father. And 
one of your twins, your daughter Haley, was in the hospital with a rare disease diagnosed as bacterial meningitis. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So right around the time that my daughter was four months old, uh, we had gone on a trip while we were away visiting my sister. She developed a fever and kids develop fevers, but this was something more. And so we wound up taking her to the hospital and my wife uh, was with her there and is pushing and pushing and pushing to find out what's wrong with her because it's not just a fever. And at the end of the day, it turns out she had bacterial meningitis. Um, she had been given a spinal tap and all sorts of other tests. And, and this was the diagnosis. And what it meant for us was she was going to be in the hospital for two weeks because she had to get treated through uh, intravenous. And we couldn't do that at home with her because she was four months old. So right there, I mean, major shock to the system that we were going to be spending. You know, my daughter was going to be living in a hospital for two weeks. One, she'd never been away from her twin brother for more than maybe an hour. Now we're talking two weeks. Two, my wife and I have to figure out how to split time between the hospital and home so that our children have one of us at all times. Uh, we both work. Uh, I am just really getting underway with my business, uh, you know, which was a huge undertaking for me. And of course, right, like bacterial meningitis is some scary words. So a lot was going on. So we're at the hospital in town, beautiful hospital, great setting, great situation. The The plan was my wife, after the first night, we decided my wife would stay overnight with her for two nights, take a break. I would take the third night and then uh, we would switch. I was still going to the hospital to visit every day, but you know she needed to, to get some real sleep at home. So technically she did three nights, but Wednesday night is my first night to stay overnight in the hospital with my daughter. So far, everything had been going smoothly and swimmingly. Uh, the staff there was great. The care was excellent. Uh, you know, it had already sort of become a routine. She eats, she sleeps, she gets checked up. No biggie. I was going there, hang out with her, do some work, let my wife rest. So that first night, it's post-bottle. I'm holding her for a little bit. Just, you know, give her some comfort because she's mostly hanging out in a bed. And all of a sudden she just kind of freezes in my arms and she becomes very unresponsive. Her eyes sort of roll back in her head and I'm talking to her. I'm shouting at her. I'm trying to get her to move or do something and she wouldn't do. And I knew right away something was wrong. And so I call the nurse in and the nurse comes in and calmly says, what's going on? I said, I, I don't know. She just, she isn't moving. I, it might be a seizure. And she, you know, quickly looked at my daughter, took her out of my arms and started to call for help and sort of confirm my fears that, yeah, my daughter at four months old is having a seizure. To that point, you told me earlier, you said when you were holding your daughter in your arms and she had a seizure, it quote unquote, knocked you for a loop and changed you as a person and a father. How? I I think it was because being a father, you know that you are dealing with, you know, vulnerable population, right? You have these little itty bitty beings that they cannot survive without you. And, you know, everything they do is scary. And, and you know, you think about, could they get hurt? Could they do this? Am I, you know, are they going to choke on that? Right? Like 
you have to 24 seven care for kids that small and then to have two of them. So I'd sort of have this feeling of the vulnerability of life, but I'd also just kind of felt like routine and this moment, it just, it changed. It wasn't just another fever. It wasn't just another oopsie, right? You know, oh, the kid fell over trying to walk or like, it was so surreal to feel and see my daughter in such a vulnerable way. And it was scary. It was, I, I didn't think of it in terms of it being fatal or something like that, but it's still just, it, my mind was racing as to what was going on with her and what was going to be the result of all this. And I just, I'd never, I don't think I'd ever really felt that sense of fear before um, than I did when, when that had happened. Over the two weeks that you were in the hospital, it was a roller coaster of emotions and you had a sense of lack of control, lack of being able to help your daughter. There were results that folks were telling you that maybe your daughter had a, had to have a very scary and risky brain surgery. And then she had another seizure just when you thought things were over and you were out of the blue. What was it like just to experience being out of control for such a long period of time in such a scary situation? It, it shook me to my core. Um, not only because you are a father and you're on this roller coaster ride with your daughter's health and, you know, this tiny, tiny person and, and you can't do anything right. You, when you become a parent, you are willing to move mountains for them, right? If somebody tells you, this is what you can do to help your kid, you will do it and you will figure it out and whatever it takes. And then to be in the situation in the hospital where something has to be done and you either can't get answers or have no control over it is so hard. And, and to add to all that, I'm a bit of a control person. I, I am not really good at relinquishing control in my everyday life. So imagine that on top of what is already a situation that would make anybody a little bit stressful and a little bit upset. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was not fun. And, and like you said, also the, the highs and the lows were so intense because after that first seizure, we had to go from one hospital to a new hospital, from one floor to a new floor, from one test to another test, one result to a different result. And, and because we wanted information and because it was, it was coming from so many different sources. We were just being told so many different things that one day it was like, everything is great. The next day it was like you said, uh, we think she's going to be having open brain surgery. Then, you know, and you hear these words just dropped in and you don't know what they mean clinically, but you've heard them in the real world and they scare you. And so it's just, it really, really pains you. To, to get that emotional roller coaster and then not have any control over the situation. During this time, you wondered if this was some sort of punishment for something you had done wrong. Can you explain where your head was at this time? It's interesting because I'm not really a religious person. I am a 
culturally Jewish person. I, I celebrate the holidays with my family and, you know, we'll go to synagogue on the days that we're supposed to go to synagogue, but I'm not much of a concern about the afterlife thinking there's some being that's punishing us. But in, in the worst moments, I felt like this might've been some sort of karma thing or like, I, you know, this was happening because of something that I had done. And the funny thing is, is like, I can't really think of a, of anything in particular in my life that I've done that would warrant such a, a traumatic thing. But I still was trying to find a way to blame myself. And, and that's probably mostly in my head. And that's probably, you know, partially culture of some of the people that I was raised by no one in particular, but you know, we have a little bit of martyrdom syndrome in our family where, you know, we want to, <laughs> we, we, we want to make it about us, um, when it's not. And so I, I spent a lot of time wondering if all of this was happening because of me now that I'm well past it, I, I think I'm, it's safe to say it didn't and that's not, and that's not how these things happen, but your mind goes in really, really dark and scary places when you're on an emotional roller coaster like this. And again, when you have no control over the situation. You had just recently become an entrepreneur. You had just bought a new house. You just had twin babies. What were you scared about in this moment? I mean, I was at a lot of points scared of losing her. And maybe not even in the fatalistic sense, but just in the this beautiful, happy child just not being the same after all this was said and done. Would she develop normally? Would she be able to walk? Would she, you know, maybe get stuck in some sort of vegetative state? A lot of these were, were not really even possibilities around the table, but that's where my mind went racing to. Would the hospital bills put us out on the street now thankfully we had decent insurance but you know two different hospitals icus testing two weeks i mean i I just didn't know i I didn't know what it was going to look like when all was said and done and because i had just started my own business i didn't really have a ton of money coming in every dollar counted and we had just bought the house earlier that year. So it felt like it could all just crumble very, very quickly. And the life that we were projecting to lead just felt like it could have been snatched from us in any second. Matthew, when you have no control in a situation like this, were there other areas of your life where you started to hyper-focus and turn your attention toward? I I think I was hyper focused on Haley and her care. I, I think I didn't stop worrying about everything else, right? I didn't stop thinking about my also four month old son who's wondering where are my parents who I normally see every day? What's up with this guy spending most of his time with me, who happens to be his his Zadian grandfather and who they have a beautiful relationship because of it, but Right, like I'm, I'm thinking about him. I, I was thinking about work. Um, brand new business, and one of my best attributes was 
punctuality and customer service. And I panicked that, you know, they wouldn't understand that I was going through a personal trauma and that I might not hit their deadlines and thought, you know, well, there goes all that business. Everything I had, everything I had started was going to disappear, but I, I still remained hyper focused on, on her, on where this was going on, what our lives were going to look like on the other side of this. Um, and that, that thankfully towards the end of the, or I even say like within the second week of this, a lot of the concern had faded away because we were seeing everything take hold and work. And we saw the return of our daughter who unbeknownst to us might have been sick for longer than we realized. Matthew, you said to me that the neurology floor aged you, but did it also mature you? I think this whole experience matured me. I I think a lot of people change when their kids are born. You take on a, a whole new set of responsibility. You take on a whole new attitude your priorities change. It's automatic. You know, you, you understand love in a way that you, even, even for the amount that I love my wife, you just understand love in a different way when it's kids that you couldn't stop, you know, you, you can't understand before that, but everybody, I feel like anybody can be a parent and everybody can go, you know, get that experience and it forces you to do certain things that are more mature. But this really changed me. I, I think I still thought that I could be just an older kid that had kids. Um, you know, I, I could still think and behave like, oh, whatever. I'm, you know, I'm just an, uh, a, a younger adult, you know, who's ready to have kids. But all of this, all the vulnerability that I, I experienced during this, all of the scare, all of the fear that I felt for my daughter and what it really meant that I had to be and had to do as a father I think took it to that next level. I feel like even amongst my family, I was being looked at differently. I wasn't just in my family. I'm the, I'm the youngest of two kids. And, you know, my wife and I are, I think we're always kind of looked down as like the kids in the family, even though we're adults. And I think coming out of that, it went from, we were the kids to now these are now adults. These are, really fully matured, responsible adults. And I'm sure to a lot of people that sounds like a bunch of nonsense, but it just, uh, it just changed me. Um, and just made me realize that I can't go back to pretending I'm a kid anymore, that my life is now all about them and, and providing and setting an example and ensuring that they are prepared for the world. Matthew, you mentioned to me that this experience initiated you in the eyes of your family and to being a man. 
Can you tell us more about that transformation? Yeah, I think, and and look, I'm I am projecting my thoughts on them, but I think I was seen differently and treated differently as not just the younger kid who finally bought a house and finally had a kid and you know is is finally doing all this stuff, but to go through all of that to in a sense survive all of that to you know i think it just showed everyone what we were capable of when you when you tell people the story and we were talking you know telling the story to our friends for a few weeks and months after that and every so often it still comes up i mean their their reaction and shock to what we went through is is visible and to just see us go through it, you know, move on. Not, I don't want to say move on because it makes it sound like we forgot about it, but to then get back into our routine again, to get back to what normal life is supposed to be for uh, kids that young and for ourselves and without it having, I guess, in a sense, you know, really... I guess to say we survived it, you know, it, it would have been so easy to just walk away or, or quit or handle it differently or, you know, just sort of recoil and, and say, I don't know what to do. Somebody tell me. But my wife and I took control of the situation and we, you know, we dictated the terms. We you know, we had the plan. We were the ones who got through it and figured it out and, and made sure that all the, you know, decisions were going through us. And it, it no longer felt like we still needed our parents in the room to, to help us. Not that our parents were helicopter parents or something, you know, crazy like that. But, you know, even when buying a house, we consulted with them a lot. We asked them a lot of questions. We wanted to get we didn't need their approval, but it was good to have it. And with this, we have their support, but we had the control of the situation and we took care of it. And, you know, Haley was the better for it. Matthew, one thing that you said to me earlier that really stands out at this moment, you said being a parent felt like something you do. It was difficult to have twins, but we didn't know any better. It felt routine. But this was when the gravity of parenting and the preciousness of the lives we are raising took hold. So it sounds like it was a transformation for both you and your wife. Yeah. I mean, again, when you have kids, there is a change that takes place. You know, you, you hold something so small and you are 24 seven obsessed with their care. You know, they, you, you can't leave the room when you have a kid. And for us having twins, we had so many people who had recently had kids that were like, I can't even imagine having two. And the truth is we didn't know the difference, right? Like we still had to do all the same things that a parent of one has to do. We just had to do it twice. And it also just meant that we could never really take our attention off the ball, so to speak. Right. Like it's, I don't want to get too far down to this rabbit hole, but like 
you know, when you have one, it's easy to pass one over to your spouse and walk away for a few minutes. But if there's two of them, <laughs> there's, unless they're really in a controlled environment, like it, it felt like we always had to do things together. There always had to be two hands on deck because, you know, this little being just needs that much attention. But anyway, so that, that's just what parenting is in the beginning. And you do it, you feed them, you, you change a lot of diapers, you get peed on, like all these things just happen. And it's just part of that crazy experience. And you talk about it with your friends and you share the stories on Facebook and everybody has a good laugh. And it's just like, ah, we have kids. That's what we do. But then, yeah, for this to happen and to see how or to feel how potentially quickly it can all change and and to sort of face those worst probabilities that closely was really really scary i mean as a parent and i've I, parents i know whose kids are 20 right they still stay up at night waiting for their kid to come home because you're always worried about your kids and so even when they're little, right, you're like, don't touch that. You could choke on that. You could fall down there. Like all these things feel <laughs> scary and, you know, could hurt your kid. And you start to grow out of that a little bit. You're like, eh, they fell. It happens. Like they need to fall sometimes. But this just, it just became so real how precious their life is and how it could all change um, in a way that was, that was quite honestly scary and altering. It made me really appreciate my time with them more. In fact, you know, there are days where being stuck at home with everybody feels like it's a chore because trying to work and you got to keep an eye on the kids. But the truth is like, it's, it's so amazing to be at home with the kids and to be able to play and hug them and, you know, have them cuddle and sit on your lap while you're hanging out. And it just, it's, you will appreciate the moments with them more when you, you know, after somebody's like, yeah, you're going to love your kids, but it just, to think that something could have happened that was totally out of my control just makes me want to hug and squeeze them even harder every day. Matthew Haley was released from the hospital and she was fully recovered. But every sniffle, every time her temperature fluctuated, even a degree, right? You guys were watching it, paying attention to it. What was that like? And how long did you sort of stay in this state of sort of being fully aware that this could happen again? It, it, the interesting thing was it, it was every time she had a fever Every time she cried, that felt a little bit off kilter. We were on the phone with doctors. We were, you know, checking. We were double checking, triple checking. And in fact, I remember I, I hadn't even thought of this until the, you just asked that question. It reminded me one year later on my birthday <laughs> of all days, we decide we're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything because uh, the kids have a fever. And at that point, we're like, whatever. Kids get fevers. We'll get over it. But that night, Haley had a really bad fever. And 
she wound up throwing up. And for it to happen on my birthday, for it to happen like that, we took her to urgent care. Um, I think that was the worst of it to feel like we're always going to be watching that. We're always going to be worried about that. We're always going to fear that this thing is coming back. Was kind of was kind of scary. I, I will say, since then, you know, we we've had regular follow ups for various different things because a, a lot of there was a lot of we'll call it fallout from what happened. Concerns about her physical development because she was laid up in a bed for two weeks, which a toddler, uh, an infant shouldn't have to do. You know, hearing because there was fluid on the brain, and like that was a you know cause for concern. Um, she still talks to. We still have a check in with a neurologist every few months. They just want to basically you know make sure everything is fine and doing okay. So I mean, it it won't go away for a long time. But I will say these days we don't think about it as much. We don't worry about it as much. She is smiley and happy and talking and bright and incredible and in you know all of her own ways to the point where i don't even think about it when she has a fever other there you know others around us who know what happened i think are a little bit more panicky but we've sort of we're able to get over it but yeah i mean for that first year coming out of it every every sickness was a potential do we have to go back to the hospital with her moment which is not a good way to live and not a good way to it's apparent and luckily we didn't get overboard with it, but that fear did always pop up every time it happened. As a new entrepreneur, you mentioned when this all, when this trauma happened to you and this experience really drove you deep into the belly very quickly that you were worried about your clients and, and that you couldn't be as responsive as you were and you couldn't meet their needs how did they end up reacting or responding? And ultimately, did that have any impact on sort of your need to control situations? Uh, I still have a terrible need to control situations. Uh, that will probably not change <laughs> ever. Uh, but I will say that my clients, and I didn't have a lot of them at the time, but the the ones that I did have, most of them were somewhat new fathers or at least you know in the in the fatherhood game and i was i was afraid to text them and say them or email and say hey i'm sorry i'm running behind on this like i don't know when it's going to happen but i'll i'll get it done and you know i was in a panic about what their response is going to be and to their credit and it has probably impacted the way that i offer my services to them all of them were said, family comes first. All of them understood what it meant to be a dad and what it meant to have to take care of your family and that I wasn't going to be punished because this was happening to us. We're so grateful for that response that to this day, every so often, the, you know, a couple of them are always like, you know, you haven't raised our prices and you probably should. And, and I sort of feel this overwhelming sense of loyalty to not do it because of that. I mean, for a lot of other breaks and a lot of other things that they've done that have helped me, that have given me the chances and the opportunities that I have today. But that kindness, that empathy, uh, sympathy in, in some senses that they showed, 
has endeared me to them for as long as I can have the pleasure of working with them. And the lifestyle of being an entrepreneur, has that allowed you to spend more time with your family? Yes and no. I mean, it's nice to be able to, when I want to, take the time and, you know, when my kids, when school was open, like go into school and help out with swim time or go to school on, you know, for their holidays and presentations. Knowing that I work from home means that, again, before all of this shelter in place, every day I stopped working at four o'clock and I made dinner and I made sure that I was off the clock from the time the kids got home until the time they go to bed. You know, if I had an office job, who knows if I could have gotten, if my schedule would have worked out like that, or if I wouldn't have been stuck in traffic and missed saying goodnight to them every night. Because of this work, I am able to hug them and kiss them every single night and read them a story. I am there every morning when they wake up. I get to make breakfast for them. Now I'm making lunch for them every single day. And with my wife home, we're splitting dinners a little bit more. But, you know, normally I make dinner for them every night. I, I don't I just don't know where I would be if I didn't work for myself, whether I'd have that kind of freedom. It's it's amazing. It's and and truthfully, the fact that I've been able to do what I can do now, I also just feel like I can give them what they need. That, you know, we are growing and raising them to the best of our ability without having to worry about, you know, can they get the medical attention they need? Yes. Is there food on the table whenever they have to eat? Yes. Uh, are we home? Yes. Like, uh, you know, we, I think we just able to provide such a, a loving and caring and warm environment for them so that they should never, you know, go without. Looking back at this experience in its entirety, and of course, without considering the health aspects of it all, right? Taking away the danger possibility of your daughter, but thinking about how it impacted you and the transformation that you've made, would you take it back if you could? Would you be the man that you were before this experience right now or the man that you are today? I wouldn't take it back. I think I'm probably a better dad. I think I'm probably a more present dad, uh, more appreciative. Certainly, I mean, I don't think I would have been irresponsible, but I, I think, you know, I think all the things that I think I probably would have done well as a dad, I'm going to do that much better um, because of this experience. So I, I wouldn't take it back. I wouldn't. I wouldn't undo it. Matthew, if you could talk to yourself before all of this started and whisper some words of encouragement and share some of the wisdom that you have today, what would you say to yourself? I think one of the things that I would try and tell myself before all of this is not to make it about me, right? You know, there were parts of the story before the seizures where I was 
worried about the Wi-Fi and I was worried about this and I thought that this was happening to me, not, you know, not that I was part of what was happening to my daughter. And, you know, saying it that way makes it sound even more incredibly selfish than it already was. And so I, I think I would just want to remind myself that it's not happening to me and it's not about me. And there are life is hard for lots of people in lots of ways and you can stand up to it and face it and deal with it or pivot and adjust and, you know, move on from it. Or you can sit there and whine and think, why is this happening to me? Oh, woe is me. What am I going to do? And I would want to tell my younger self to, you know, cut the crap and uh, don't waste so much time with the whining and just start to figure out what's next. Okay, this this is the situation. These are the facts. What are you going to do about it? In what ways does this experience come up in your everyday life, whether that's the lessons that it taught you or just the signs and the symbols that remind you of that experience? The nice thing is, is these days, I don't feel like it comes up in everyday life. I, I just, I enjoy my kids every day, especially now I really get to enjoy them every day. I think the one permanent change that it has had that I use every day. But again, I don't, you know, think about this consciously is just this idea that whatever the worst thing that is happening to you right now is it will pass. Right. Even, even when we started to find out that we were going to be stuck sheltering in place and that there wasn't going to be daycare and, you know, we were all going to be working from home and things were going to be limited. I, I think, prior me would have spent a lot more time whining about it and you know complaining about it and what I did instead was I heard the facts I assessed the situation and I prepared for it I just started making decisions that I thought would help us adjust to it and have all of us be prepared for what was coming and as long as this is going on, I, you know, I think a lot of people are starting to lose it fairly, rightly so. I, I don't blame them. I think a lot of people are getting impatient and they want answers. I think a lot of people are scared and nervous and the uncertainty is frightening. And I have all that, but I also have this overwhelming sense of calm that just says, you got this. Whatever, whatever this means, whatever they're throwing at you, you'll figure it out. You'll, you'll, you know, you'll find the solution because it's what you have to do and not for you, but for them. Matthew, thank you so much for the story. It was a pleasure to tell it. What an extraordinary life story. If this story moved you, help enable our mission and keep this advertising free podcast going by chipping in $5 at bellystory.com. I'm responsible and accountable for this podcast, but I don't do it alone. 
Milos Brochetta is our sound engineer. Artie Wu is our advisor. And many others have helped along the way to bring the story to life. Thank you for listening. I'm David All, and this is Belly of the Beast Life Stories and Beyond. Thank you for rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend or two. Stay tuned. I'm working on some stories that you need to hear.